Folks, as I just mentioned to all the children, the ending of the Christian year is always marked as we are marking it here in the church today again with the Sunday of Christ the King. This is the case each and every year so that our final image of Jesus Christ before we begin again with Advent will always be the important image of Christ in his ultimate glory and majesty for all the world. Christus Rex, the King Christ, as we are blessed to see every time we gather here in All Saints on the beautiful carved cross above our altar. It is our liturgical reminder of what our ultimate proclamation about Jesus always has been and always will be, that Jesus Christ was not simply an enlightened teacher, that Jesus Christ was not just a wild Jewish revolutionary, that Jesus Christ was not another failed executed prophet in ancient Israel. Instead, Jesus Christ was and is and will always be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, and the King of Heaven, the best words we can possibly put together in the English language to describe He that is above all. As St. John the Divine writes to the seven churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation that we heard a reading from this morning, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Every year I can't help but think over the course of the lead up to Christ the King Sunday, the favorite story that I have from my childhood that involves a king. You see, before I knew anything about the kings and queens of England that helped to shape our Anglican church. Before I'd ever heard that terrible story of Henry VIII and his divorces or Elizabeth I, the greater story in her religious settlement of James I and his spectacular Bible or Charles II in his prayer book, all that I knew about kings came from the stories and legends of one British king or English king, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Today, I could change that with Game of Thrones. But when I was a child, it was always the Knights of the Round Table. I was and I still am a huge fan of the sagas of he who has become known as the once and future king of England. By the time I was in middle school, I'd read all the Arthurian legends of Camelot that I could get my hands on in the library. The stories of the quests for the Holy Grail of Merlin and Morgan Le Fay and of the sword Excalibur and of all that's come to be known in English literary and historical circles as the matter of Britain. And when I got older, on two of the trips that I've made to the UK, I've always made a point of finding a way to visit the tiny village of Glastonbury in the Somerset country of southwest England. I journeyed there each time for no other real reason than to visit the place believed to be the mythical Isle of Avalon, where King Arthur was whisked away after suffering the mortal wound from his son Mordred in the stories of the last battle. On the grounds of the now-ruined Glastonbury Abbey, a plaque still marks the very spot where medieval monks claim to have found the grave of a regal man and a golden-haired woman bound together in the trunk of an oak tree. Buried in that strange sarcophagus was supposedly an Iron Age cross with a Latin inscription. 
And that Latin inscription proclaimed that here lies buried the famous King Arthur on the Isle of Avalon. Even though this whole story is generally believed today to be a hoax created by some rather money-smart monks trying to raise some funds for their monastery, I am still compelled by the visit and the imagination that comes with the story of King Arthur in England. For this particular part of the Arthurian legends of Arthur buried beneath the ancient Tor on the Isle of Avalon has become to appeal even more to me as a priest because just as C.S. Lewis will do in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe with The Lion Aslan, in the story of King Arthur it's at this place where there is a messianic twist. For it is in this final part of the story when Arthur is given the title the once and future king because according to legend, Arthur is still waiting for the right moment to return again, riding forth with his knights and with Excalibur in his hand to save England in her greatest hour of need. I wonder if maybe that hour will be this upcoming week when the Brexit vote returns from the EU into British Parliament. We'll just have to wait and see. For me as a child, King Arthur was everything I thought that a king had to be, brave, strong, chivalrous, and just. It would be quite disappointing when I got older, went to school, and discovered that nearly every real king from history, English or otherwise, failed miserably at all of those important traits when compared to the mythic kings of ancient mythology. Boyhood fantasies of knights and damsels in distress were all quickly replaced with the harsh realities of greedy, murderous rulers and despots, nearly all with little or no concern for their subjects or people. And today, in our American culture, isn't it true that kings and queens, those very words have become little more than a grade up of celebrity, providing fodder for tabloids and division among the people of our nation. It is now no wonder to me that in the past, when faced with the kings and queens of the real Middle Ages, so many of the common people in England and Wales and Brittany and in France dreamed up a king like Arthur and wondered about a future when that kind of leader and ruler might arise and come into the world to set their struggles straight. And isn't that what we tend to quickly discover whenever we ourselves place our hopes in earthly kings and princes, on leaders and politicos? It isn't hard to suddenly find that even with the greatest of hope, the reality will eventually begin to creep in. We can create in our minds what a great leader might look like, what attributes and qualities they should have. We can even be fooled into believing that we've found them from time to time. But each and every one of those will somehow fail eventually. And yet, we, just like the ancient people of Israel thousands of years ago, are still hoping for a king. It may be surprising for many of you to know that the origins of this day, the Feast of Christ the King, what we call Christ the King Sunday, is actually not from an ancient time at all. Rather, this particular day on the church calendar began in the Western church only within the last 100 years. It was established just after the First World War in 1925. Pope Pius XI introduced Christ the King Sunday to the Christian calendar at a moment 
in our recent history when the world was trying to pull itself back out of the devastation and carnage of what was known then as the Great War. Nations of people around the globe at that time were beginning to try to find a way forward, to search maybe again for a new leader. Those people who, like a mythical King Arthur, might arise out of the destruction of Europe and promise hope and reconstruction along with vindication and righteous retribution. And there were certainly great names at that time, weren't there? Names like Roosevelt and Churchill. But we also know that around the same time there was emerging out of the Great War other names of other leaders who would soon begin another war. Names like Mussolini, like Stalin, and like Adolf Hitler. Christ the King Sunday was a feast day introduced to try to remind the church, wherever they were found, that our ultimate hope must never be in the political forces and political rulers moving in the world, no matter how mythic they may be when they first appear. Our hope is not of this world. Our hope as Christians must always be of God. And today in a world that continues to suffer again and again through violence and darkness and hate, that is where Christ the King Sunday continues to be important and to remain. As Christians, disciples of Christ the King, our ultimate hope, our only hope, must ever and always be found in our God, revealed through the incarnation of love and hope, which the Christian year moves through over and over again in the story of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is our one true Savior and Messiah, and it is His reign that will not be a reign of fear and disappointment, but a reign of peace and justice, the reign of God's promised kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. That is our Christian hope, and that is our good news in the face of the failing kingships of earthly power that fill this world. We are citizens first and foremost through baptism, and it leads us not into an earthly nation, but into the kingdom of God. And the alternatives we have seen to this kingdom are what we must always be ready to stand up in opposition to, whether it's Nazi Germany or some new development in something like the Islamic State of recent times. These moments are easy for us to identify with now, but there will always be harder moments when we as Christians must realize that we're not able to serve the world and also serve Christ. In the face of the Roman Empire, Jesus reminded Pilate that the kingdom Jesus himself represented was never the same as that of a Caesar or a Pharaoh or a governor. When Pontius Pilate sat down on the judgment seat at near the end of the story of the crucifixion, and when he asked Jesus, arrested and standing before him as nothing but a criminal, are you what you say you are? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, Sir, my kingdom is not of this world. For Pilate, there was simply no concept of that variety of kingship, a kingship that didn't involve political power or kingdoms toppled by violence and war of rulers that hold sovereignty, not through truth and love, but rather through force and through wealth and through propaganda and through division. Jesus throws that world, the world of Pilate, upside down, saying to Pilate, You say that I am a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. 
Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Brothers and sisters, the truth that Jesus holds up to the world is the truth that places no such faith in our earthly failures, but only in love and justice and sovereignty that only comes through the grace of God, a God that is revealed most perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus will not be some human constructed romance myth or legend, but a real resurrected servant king who will show us step by step, step his faithful subjects the way to our own fulfillment and salvation in a kingdom not of this world, but of God. By following Christ in sacrifice and in service and in love and in reconciliation to others. Jesus said, for this I was born And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. As we come to the end of this Christian year, may the church always carry with it this great banner of the day. The banner of the King of truth and the Lord of love, who is and was and is to come, the almighty Christ the King.